there is a word, a word that strikes fear into the hearts of every Christian. It's a word that sets us on edge a little bit, that makes us uncomfortable. It's a word that is a whole lot easier said than done. And that word is evangelism. Take a look at this little video clip. So, how was your weekend? Oh, it was fairly ordinary. Um, Saturday afternoon we had a thing at Allison's folks and just stayed at home Saturday night. Uh, church on Sunday was pretty good though. Church? I didn't know you went to church. Yeah, almost every Sunday. Why would a sensible bloke like yourself go to church? I mean, does a wife make you? No, no, no. I go because it's my choice. I go because I'm a Christian. Do you know what I mean? But I wouldn't have the foggiest. Enlighten me, comrade. Okay, well, being a Christian is all about following Christ. Following where? <laughs> Sorry? Where? Where? Following where? Um, um, where? Uh, to heaven, I guess, which is, which is where God is. Right, so if you're a good little boy, you go to heaven. No, no, no. Well, yes. Um, no, 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 no. It's not, about, it's not about what you do. It's more about what God has done. It's about having a relationship with Jesus where he's your friend and not, um, and not some big ogre. Uh, it's not about rules and stuff, though. It, it's more about um, knowing that forgiveness. Um, um, but not that you don't try and do the right thing, but um, that, that, that's when you get the Holy Spirit. And, but that comes after you, um, you're a Christian. Sorry, mate. You've lost me. Holy what? Spirit. Holy Spirit. It's, um, it's God's presence enabling you to do the right thing. But that's not really the essence of it either. It's, look, Jesus died for our sins. That's got to be the biggest thing about being a Christian. Right. So how can you follow someone when he's dead? Well, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. The resurrection? You heard of it? That's also a big part of being a Christian is um, believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And that he's coming again, so you've got to be ready. And so you try and um, um, keep um, doing what's good and, and trying to obey him. And you walk in the truth. And, um, and it makes a huge difference to your life. Like it's made a big difference to my life. And, and, and you want to be more like Jesus. And after a while you change to be like him. And, and, and God's in there and they're working. And, um, and you, want to, you find you want to pray more and, and read more. Um, um, but um, I'm not very good at that. Very good at what? At explaining any of this. <laughs> I have no doubt that many of us, if not all of us, at some point have been in that exact situation, right? I mean, God gives us the opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus, and all of a sudden our hearts begin to race. Our Fitbits start to buzz because we're burning calories and we're just standing there sweating. Our palms are sweating. And before we even say a word to the other person, we think to ourselves, what in the world am I supposed to say? I mean, what if I say the wrong thing? What if this person thinks I am a total nutcase by the time this conversation is over? I mean, what if they reject me? Well, you know what? This probably isn't all that important to the Christian life anyway. I mean, can't, can't I just let my good deeds do the talking? This is just uncomfortable. You know what? This is stupid. Let's get on to the, to the Mayweather, Pacquiao fight. Let's get on to the weather. Let, let's get on to something else. Anything but this. I've been there. I've been there. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, Chris, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't know that I've ever had an evangelistic conversation with anybody before. Or maybe you're here this morning and 
The last time you talked to somebody about Jesus, Jimmy Carter was president. And gas was, you know, 99 cents a gallon. Listen, whether it's the fear of rejection or not knowing what to say or how to say it, or frankly just not being convinced enough that evangelism is all that important to the Christian life, we have all at some point had our hang-ups with evangelism. And in light of our Reach One campaign this year at Old North Church, thinking about how busy we've been in the month of April with important stuff, constitutions and budgets and calling a new senior pastor, we're coming to God's Word this morning to a fascinating and wonderful narrative passage in the book of Acts that communicates one thing very clearly as it relates to evangelism. It's that we need to be actively engaging in effective evangelism. If we are going to call ourselves Christians and associate ourselves with Jesus, then we need to understand that we have got to be continually engaging in effective evangelism. Of course, the natural question that follows is, what does that look like? What is it that that makes evangelism effective? What's the driving force behind it? What are are some of the necessary components to effective evangelism? And and why is it so important to the Christian life? These are the questions that we are humbly bringing before God and his word this morning. So I'd like to pray, and then, uh, then we'll get started together. Father, we thank you for the chance to be here and just in a moment of honesty acknowledge the challenge of dealing with this important issue in the Christian life. We confess our failures in this area and our deep need for your help. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word this morning as we, as we seek by your grace to engage in effective evangelism. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, grab your Bibles, if you would, meet me in the book of Acts. So you have the four Gospels of the New Testament, then the book of Acts. If you do not have a Bible with you, please, please, please reach forward, grab the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Nobody will think less of you. We ever know everybody gets busy, but grab a Bible, turn to the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. We're in chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. If you're using a pew Bible and you don't own a Bible, please take that one home. We'd love to give it to you as a gift. Uh, but you will have more fun in engaging with God's word and and following along and interacting with the text. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Let me go ahead and read the entire passage. It's a narrative, so it's important for us to to get the feel and the flow of the passage, and then we will dive in in greater detail. Acts 8, beginning in verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. He heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or 
about somebody else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's just water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. As Christians, we must be continually, actively engaging in effective evangelism. And as we think about this remarkable and rather unusual passage of Scripture, we're going to zoom in and and take a look at, at five elements that teach us something about what that actually looks like, about what effective evangelism is and what it looks like. The first is that effective evangelism is driven by the sovereignty of God. The Lord of the universe, in all of his sovereignty, is the driving force behind effective evangelism. Now, you get this throughout the entire narrative account, but you really see it come into focus, uh, in particular as Luke, the author of Acts, sets up this meeting between these, these very different, very unusual, unlikely acquaintances. And in this meeting, we pick up on a couple of layers to the sovereignty of God as it relates to evangelism. The first is that God, in his sovereignty, sends messengers the Lord sends messengers to communicate his story. Again, from verse 26, you might look at it with me again. Now an angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise and go toward the south. Go to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and so he rose and went. So here, pretty clearly, we can see that that God is sending out Philip uh, to be his messenger. And he doesn't really give him a lot of details at that point, does he? I mean, he just says, rise and, and go this direction. And, and the one detail that he does give us, I think, is interesting because it's really not all that exciting. He, he basically says the equivalent of, of get up from church this morning and go for a long walk south on New Buffalo Road. You know, walk down this dusty road. Don't go to Jerusalem where all the action is happening. Don't go to Samaria where you've been preaching to crowds. I want you to walk down this, this desert road. Just trust me. And so Philip in obedience, goes as God's messenger. Now, this idea of God sending out messengers is really consistent with the rest of the Bible as we think about it. I mean, go back to the Old Testament and think about the work of the prophets, right? Those individuals speaking God's word to people, speaking on God's behalf as his messengers. We also see it in the New Testament in places like Romans 10 where Paul says, how can they believe in him who they've not heard and... How are they to hear without someone preaching? Those are great rhetorical questions, right? I mean, the answer is they cannot. There's a messenger involved. And this passage and this concept is not just for commissioning services for missionaries or ordination services for pastors. Evangelism is the call and commission of every Christian. Now, maybe you're saying, listen, Chris, this is different. I mean, if if God sent an angel... You know, and, and spoke to me through an angel or a vision or through a verbal voice of the Holy Spirit, then, then maybe I would think a little bit more seriously about evangelism. I mean, Philip had a, a strategic advantage here as God's messenger. 
I might propose that we actually have such a clear and sufficient word. I wonder if you've heard of something called the Great Commission. Have you heard of it? Yeah, it's this wonderful piece of uh, the Gospels, Matthew 28 in particular, where Jesus, the sovereign Lord, the one to whom all authority had been given, sends out his followers to go into all the world. This, friends, is our clear and sufficient word. We have it. And it's given by the sovereign Lord. Uh, J.I. Packer has done some remarkable work on this idea of the sovereignty of God driving evangelism in a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Cannot commend it to you highly enough. He says it this way. God's way of saving men is to send out his servants to tell them the gospel. And the church has been charged to go into all the world for that very purpose. God in his sovereignty sends messengers. There's a second dimension, though, to the sovereignty of God throughout this passage. It's that in his sovereignty, God also calls sinners. The Lord graciously, intentionally, sovereignly calls sinners to himself. This is where we meet the second character of this remarkable story. Verse 27. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. He came to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28, and was returning and reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, scholars go back and forth as to exactly what this guy was doing in Jerusalem and why he was there. I mean, some say he was a converted Jew. Uh, others, it seems like the majority, feel like he was a Gentile who was perhaps seeking some answers, some spiritual answers. But, but we do know a couple of things about this guy. First of all, he was a eunuch. And if you don't know what that means, Google it later. Carefully, very carefully. But he was a eunuch, and he was also a, a man of, of responsibility and, and great privilege. He was a court official to the queen of Ethiopia. But the real interesting detail that I think Luke, the author, gives us here is that this guy is returning from Jerusalem, sitting in his chariot, and he's reading the Bible. Now, what's interesting to me about this, I don't know what your experience is, but, but the friends that I have who are not Christians, uh, the acquaintances that I have who are not Christians, do not typically substitute their morning edition of the New York Times with the book of Isaiah. It, it just it doesn't really happen that way. Why? Well, because like all of us, before we have an experience with God's saving grace, we're not interested in the Bible. We don't really care much about what God has to say about this issue or that issue, and so something really unique is happening here. God sends in his sovereignty Philip to meet this guy. It's a divine appointment of sorts, and now he's reading the Bible? What's happening? Well, knowing the end of the story, we know that God in his sovereignty is calling this man to himself. He's extending a call. We just got a new puppy in our house, a drawn bed house. We did. We got a little Brittany Spaniel puppy. His name is Piper, and he is, man, is he cute as a button. The kids are like out of their minds excited about this puppy, and he's been very fun. But one thing I will tell you, as you probably know about puppies, is that they do not always come when they're called. Piper, stop chewing that. Get over here. Get away from that. Get to you know all day long. You know, and he doesn't really respond when I call his name. It's interesting. This is not what happens when God calls one of His own. This is not how it works when God, in His sovereignty, effectually calls out to one of His own. You might remember the story of 
of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. After everybody thought that Jesus was too late, that he had drug his feet, he did not arrive in time, Jesus comes and, and in his sorrow and in his sovereign power calls out, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man comes to life. This is what God's sovereign, effectual call is like. God looks at a person dead in their sins, totally oblivious to God, and he says, come forth. And they do. Do you see the massive, joyful implications that this has on effective evangelism? Do you know what this means? This means that God is the one that is driving the process to success. He is doing the heavy lifting. He is cooperating and working with human beings as his messengers and in calling sinners, but God in his sovereignty is the one who guarantees the success of evangelism. That is fantastic news. I can barely get my kids to brush their teeth in the morning, let alone convince somebody they should follow Jesus. It is wonderful news that God in his sovereignty drives the entire process. It means that we should be rejoicing, we should be eager to submit and follow him. It also means that we should be patient and allowing God to work in his time according to his plan and purpose. The sovereignty of God drives effective evangelism. The second element that we can glean from this passage is that effective evangelism happens in our relationships with people. Personal relationships are the context, they are the, the canvas upon which effective evangelism is painted. You might look again at verse 30. So Philip, having received this commission, this eunuch, having received this call, Philip ran to him, verse 30. I love that. And heard him reading Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch says, how can I? Unless someone guides me. Invited Philip to come on up and have a chat. I love the way that Luke captures the details of this meeting. I mean, you've got Philip so eager to find out what God is up to along this desert road that he actually runs alongside the chariot. You can kind of picture him. Hey, uh, hey, I see you've got Isaiah there. You've got the, the scroll with Isaiah. Do you, do you have any idea what you have there? Do you know what you're reading? You know, and the eunuch bouncing along. You know, he's, you know what? Actually, it's interesting that you're here because I have no idea. Do you have a minute to grab a coffee? Maybe we could, we could talk through it. The reason I love this is because it brings evangelism down to the one-on-one -on -one level. It makes it very personal, doesn't it? I mean, so many of us have this concept, this idea that evangelism is only for Billy Graham crusades. Right? It's only for preachers and pulpits, big pulpits. And, and public proclamation has its place. I mean, if you were to go back, actually, in Acts chapter 8, you would see Philip himself addressing some pretty big crowds. So public evangelism does have its place, but it is not limited to the sphere of the crusade, of the tent meeting. Evangelism happens in our personal relationships with people. It happens at Panera and Peaberries and at your dining room table. I love the way that the Apostle Paul regularly appeals to this simple yet fundamental idea of relational presence in ministry. I'll give you an example. To a church that he loved very much, the Thessalonians, he said, being affectionately desirous of you, we, meaning he and his team, were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
You see the personal affection and attention in Paul's statement there. Because effective evangelism does not happen in a vacuum. It is not some hypothetical, theological, academic exercise. It happens when we're around other people. It is reported that a man once stood up in one of D.L. Moody's meetings and he said, Moody, I have been five years on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus. Moody looked at the man and he said, well, how many souls have you won? The man responded, well, I, I actually don't know. Moody says, have you, have you found even one? He says, you know, I, I, I can't say that I have. And Moody's response is timeless. He says, well, sit down then, because when a man gets so high that he cannot reach down to help and save others, there is something wrong. We often say around here that if you're looking for something to do in the church, just find a person. It's really that simple. Don't get busy in ministry. Don't try to find some brilliant program. Find a person, because this is the setting that effective evangelism happens in. You know what your assignment is this week? I want you to meet a person that hates Jesus and buy him coffee. This, this is all. This is the takeaway. Engage with people. Be with people. Find people. Because effective evangelism happens in the context of personal relationships. Now, the next couple of elements that we're going to talk about of effective evangelism give us a little more content, right? They give us a little substance for the conversation. The next component here is that effective evangelism incorporates a right handling of Scripture. If we are going to be effective in evangelism, then we better know how to handle the Bible. We see the evidence of this in verse 32. Luke gives us the passage of Scripture that he was reading. Look at it. From Isaiah, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. He goes on, and the eunuch asks him a big question. About whom does the prophet say this? This is really the moment of truth, isn't it? I mean, the account, the narrative is building tension, building and building. You have this unusual calling of Philip, this unusual drawing and calling of, of this eunuch. They come together. They're, they're talking about the Bible. And then this big question comes out. And Philip is called upon to handle the scriptures both faithfully and in a helpful way to this eunuch. 2 Timothy 2.15, a verse that is etched in a common hallway at Moody Bible Institute, says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth. That's because in effective evangelism, like Philip, like Timothy and Paul, we have got to handle the scriptures well. Some of you know that I am a big Cleveland Cavaliers fan. Love my Cavaliers. I am totally bummed about the Kevin Love injury. We won't talk about that. But the one bright spot, one of the many bright spots that I think we have on this team is our young point guard. His name is Kyrie Irving. Maybe you've heard of him. And I think one of the things that Kyrie Irving does better than anybody in the league is handle the basketball. The way that he moves with the ball, such precision, such accuracy, such intentionality, I think he's the best ball handler in the NBA. When it comes to effective evangelism, we've got to handle the scriptures the way that Kyrie Irving handles the basketball. We need to understand the nuances and the literary genres of the Bible. 
We need to be able to handle difficult passages, to be able to connect the Bible together as a cohesive unit and more. Because effective evangelism incorporates this right handling. And so if you are feeling like, uh, like you're traveling or double dribbling a lot, then maybe it's time for you to work on your Bible handling skills. Not your ball handling skills, but your Bible handling skills. Maybe it's time to carve out a little more time in the week and, and connect in with a gospel project group. Groups that meet here on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday evenings. Maybe it's time to, instead of rushing out and going to lunch, to take 10 minutes and go into the common grounds and, and to find a book on inductive Bible study methods. A good, good book like Crossways Dig Deeper or perhaps a book that helps you understand the Bible as a cohesive unit like Vaughn Roberts' book, God's Big Picture, and, and actually read the thing. Or maybe it's time to find a friend or your spouse or one other person and just read the book of Romans together over the next couple of months to get together around people, around God's word, so that we can sharpen and build our ability to handle the scriptures, that we might be effective in evangelism. The fourth element of effective evangelism uh, is seen in Philip's telling response to this big question, who is this passage about? We see effective evangelism centers on Jesus and his gospel. The personal work of Jesus, as it's laid out in the gospel, is the centerpiece for effective evangelism. Look at verse 35 of our passage. If you underline in your Bible, underline this baby. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. The setup for his response, the fact that Luke says he opened his mouth, is like a a flag that Luke is waving. And he's saying, pay attention, because what's coming here is really, really important. He opened his mouth, and he tells the guy about Jesus. And he does it, interestingly enough, beginning with the scripture in Isaiah. Philip preaches Jesus from the book of Isaiah. And there's a pretty big implication there. The implication is that Jesus is not only the centerpiece for evangelism, He's also the centerpiece of the entire Bible. As Luke recorded this story, I wonder if his mind took him back to another event he wrote about in his gospel, another very important personal, intimate conversation that happened along a dusty road, the road to Emmaus, from Luke 24, where the resurrected Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to his disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So you can see the importance, the interplay of handling the Bible well and centering on the gospel. The exchange there is really important. It is also interesting to me what Philip does not open his mouth and say. He does not open his mouth and say, if you keep all the rules, you'll get to heaven and God will love you. He does not open his mouth and say, if you vote this way or that way, God will love you. Neither, believe it or not, does he open his mouth and say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. There can be a time to say that, but that's not what he says here. He opens his mouth and tells him the gospel. Friends, this is it. I mean, if you ever have a question about where to take an evangelistic conversation, take it to Jesus. Get there as quickly as you can. Take people to the cross to the place where Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, knowing that in our separation from God, we could could never work hard enough, keep enough rules to get there on our own. We needed a Savior, so take them to the cross. Take them to the empty tomb 
to the evidence for Jesus' powerful resurrection, the validation of all of his claims and all of his work. Because unless we get to the gospel, what we're really doing is just giving people good advice. And people need much, much more than good advice. I can't even follow my own good advice. I don't need more advice. I need good news. People need the gospel. Because the gospel, Paul says in Romans 1, is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is God's message for all people of all races, all socioeconomic statuses, and all of history. Here we see that happening in the book of Acts. Earlier in chapter 8, Philip is in Samaria, this unusual place with unusual people. Now he's with this Ethiopian eunuch, an African person. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth because it is God's message for all people at all times. The reality of our sin and our lost nature apart from responding to Jesus and his work and trusting in him, the message that Jesus has sufficiently provided the atonement for our sins, this is the power of God and the centerpiece for effective evangelism. There's a final element that we can glean from this passage. That's that effective evangelism aims at a response of joyful transformation. Effective evangelism has an aim, and that aim is personal, joyful transformation. Look again at what happens after Philip shares the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch, verse 36. And uh, they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So they both went down. Philip baptized him, and when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch, he went on his way rejoicing. It's important for us to understand the contrast that this guy just experienced. I mean, being a eunuch really made him a spiritual outcast. And so, having likely been disappointed by his spiritual journey to Jerusalem, having very likely been turned away from certain ministry at the temple, being frustrated that he's reading the prophet Isaiah and not getting it, all of a sudden, the lights went on. All of a sudden, something changed in him. A transformation had taken place. He believed. And some of you may have astutely noticed that verse 37 is actually missing in some of your Bible translations, that because it hasn't made it into enough manuscripts to at least make it into the ESV or other translations, it is in the New American Standard or the King James Bible. And, and what it says is that Philip responds to his question about baptism. He says, if you believe with your heart, then you may. And the eunuch says, I do believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And without getting caught up too much in the, the weeds of textual criticism and those things, the point is that this guy was different. He was changed from the inside out. And that's the reason he was the first Baptist, maybe. I mean, this guy was fired up about baptism. He said, this is, this is some water. What, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip, understanding and acknowledging his inward transformation by his belief, his faith, and repentance, says, let's go. It's actually a a great uh, tangential application for you this morning. Because baptism, as we know, is the outward symbol of an inward faith. It, it, it serves as our identification with Christ. Did you know that the initial sign of your union with Jesus is not actually walking down an aisle? 
And, and it's actually not updating your Facebook profile, you know, to Christian or whatever, or sending a tweet. The initial sign of your identification and union with Jesus is actually baptism, according to the scriptures. It's an issue that the pastors uh, have been talking about at some length, actually, lately, and feeling some measure of conviction about it. So I, I, I just want to encourage you this morning, if you're here and you're a Christian and you've not yet been baptized, pick up the phone this week and call Rick Enlow or send him an email. Because baptism is, is the natural byproduct, the natural outworking of our inward faith and repentance. Perhaps you're here this morning and uh, you've, you've never experienced the inward transformation that comes from responding to the gospel. To you, I would say, with eagerness and with sobriety, consider Jesus. And thoughtfully, consider the gospel. Consider the implications of continuing to live life separated from God, And being separated from God, living life on your own as your own Lord and Master, but also having to live with the consequences of that decision. To one day have to stand before God and try to account for your own sins. This is not a good place to be. The good news, the good news of the gospel is that God offers us salvation as a free gift. To embrace Jesus as Lord, to say he is king. I am no longer king, but he is king. And in doing so, in believing and trusting in the sufficiency of his sacrifice for your sin and turning away from that old life to a new life, receiving the blessings and the benefits of salvation, to live as a person forgiven, loved and adopted by God, justified before God, and having Jesus as your advocate. Consider this today. This is the aim of evangelism. I once heard Zig Ziglar say that if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. Evangelism has an aim. God has an aim, and it must be ours as well. A response of joyful transformation. In her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit tells the the incredible story of a search and rescue team in the Rocky Mountains. Some of you have probably heard these kind of stories before. Many of them are tragic, but these search and rescue teams are absolutely incredible. And uh, she recalls the story of one individual who remembers a particularly difficult search and rescue case. It was of an 11-year-old boy who had wandered off during a game of hide-and-seek. And to complicate the search and rescue process, this boy had some physical disabilities. The only thing he had was a little whistle uh, to blow that he was given uh, in case that happened. And so the search and rescue team worked and worked and worked all night, nothing. Finally in the morning, they did find this little guy, and he was okay, thankfully. But these search and rescue teams are absolutely incredible. And that is what this passage is teaching us today. God, in all of his kindness, has a mission. He has a search and rescue mission. And as much as I encourage you to identify with Philip in this account, we have to also understand that we identify with the eunuch because the remarkable thing about God's search and rescue is that he is looking for us even before we want to be found. We don't even understand the peril that we're in until we hear the good news of the gospel, that apart from turning to Jesus, we are lost. God comes to us in that position. This is remarkable. And then the more remarkable thing is that upon finding us and rescuing us, he commissions us to be on his team. He says, now you're part of the search and rescue team for others. He commissions us to actively, regularly engage in effective evangelism, a work that we've learned today is driven fully by the sovereignty of God, a work that happens in the context of personal relationships, a work that incorporates a right handling of the Scriptures and centering 
on the gospel of Jesus. And yes, a work that also has a particular aim, the aim of joyful transformation. We'll close this morning with an observation from commentator Derek Thomas. Here's what he says about this passage. The story of the Ethiopian looked at first as one of a man in search for God. In reality, it was God searching for the Ethiopian. Philip turns out to be a tool in the hands of the great searcher of souls, as we must be prepared to be. In seeking the salvation of others, we are the instruments of God, and there is no better place to be than where God is at work accomplishing his great plan of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the piercing truth of your word, the refreshing truth of your word. I pray that the word of God and the word of the gospel would pierce us again this morning, that you would remind us of the great hope that we have, that we once were lost and yet now have been found. And upon the free grace that you have given us, I do pray that you would also equip and empower us and move us today to be eager to engage in effective evangelism. Thank you for your sovereignty through the process, that you are driving it to a conclusion, a glorious conclusion to the glory of Jesus for using us, Lord, even as insignificant as we can feel sometimes. Thank you for your kindness in putting us on your search and rescue team. And I do pray that you would help us to be eager proclaimers of the good news, even as we come to the table now, an opportunity to, in a different way, proclaim the work of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.